Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 10 of The Korean War. Last time we looked into the American angle. To be more specific, we looked into Sino-American Relations Part 1. This is Part 2. In Part 1 we analysed the first half of 1949 from the perspective of the Truman administration. 1949 was a very eventful time, to put it mildly, and I hope that by bringing the history of that year out to you guys, we can better appreciate the war which followed. It's important to remember that the story we're often told, the straightforward, open and shut case of North Korean aggression, is far from the full story. We have seen how Stalin attempted to leverage the advantages over the Chinese that he had to get what he wanted, and how the American perspective provides further examples of a power, in this case Washington, its Secretary of State Dean Acheson, 
President Truman and countless civil servants besides, all vying to find their own point of leverage to make an impact on Mao Zedong's Chinese Communist Party and effect a change in communist foreign policy emanating from Beijing. This could be done, the Truman administration believed, by first making use of the Great Wedge strategy, that policy which envisioned America as the friend of a communist China, which itself chose a third way in world relations, and which became a Titoist entity on Stalin's Asian flank. By driving the wedge between Stalin and Mao, the worst outcome, that of a united Sino-Soviet bloc, would be avoided. But how to drive the wedge was the question. Dean Acheson believes that this could be done by recognising the communist administration in China and by normalising relations with it. Complications arose, though, thanks as we saw to the strong Republican Chinese lobby in the United States, which heaped pressure onto the Truman administration to not abandon Chiang Kai-shek. It didn't help that the communists stormed a US embassy, held its staff hostage, and so outraged the resident ambassador there that he insisted recognition and any sense of normalisation with the communists should be avoided until a later date. As long as Acheson complied, and as long as the traditional policy of supporting the Republicans continued, Mao Zedong could not turn his back on the Civil War, and he could not feel confident in the American friendship. Indeed, Mao even planned for the worst outcome. As we saw last time, you might even consider it a somewhat insane outcome, that of full-blown war with the United States, based on the belief that America would not allow the Republican regime to fall. Yet all of these concerns were old news compared to what occurred in late August 1949. That is, the Soviet detonation of its own nuclear bomb. Now that Washington was no longer the sole nuclear power, great changes threatened to be underway, and Atchison would have known that his government's leverage had shrank even further in the eyes of communist China. Let's get into the rest of the story then, as we continue to bring our coverage of Sino-American relations up to speed. I will now take you to autumn 1949. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. This is a familiar song to many of you guys, but for those that are not aware or for those that would like to know more, When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. And by joining us on Patreon, by signing up for one, two, three, four, or five dollars a week, you guys can avail of some pretty sweet goodies. In fact, I would wager that, considering what we have planned for patrons at the five dollar level in particular, there has never been a better time to sign up and become a patron of When Diplomacy Fails. What's on the way though, Zach, you might be wondering? Well, let me put it to you this way. After thinking what exactly I should hit you guys with before we encounter the big-time Age of Bismarck series that I'm really looking forward to covering, I settled on something called 1956, and 1956 is essentially the sequel to the Korean War. It's a very eventful year, an awful lot of things happen in 1956. Everything from the Suez Crisis to the Soviet Union having to put down a few revolts on its western flank. A whole load of things happen, and I've really enjoyed researching and covering it for this podcast. The way we're going to bring 1956 to life as a series is a bit unorthodox in comparison to what we've done before, but I'll be sure to keep you guys posted. Either way, if you would like to feast your ears upon an hour of extra content every month, or if you would like to access the episodes of When Diplomacy Fails a week before everyone else, once we settle down into one episode per week, this will all make more sense, and ad-free, be-fit-free, love me on Patreon-free, in other words, you won't hear me doing this again, then be sure to sign up on Patreon, guys. I really would appreciate it, and you would really be helping this podcast thrive, as well as history thrive too. 
However, if you're not going to give money, that is fine too. This podcast has and will always be free, so I don't want you guys to feel like you have to give money. However, if you would like to support without giving money, all you have to do is tell someone. Stop what you're doing right now, take out those earphones, and shout when diplomacy fails in the middle of the street or your house or wherever you happen to be, and then run for the hills. Anyway, I would like to say a huge thanks to all you guys for doing what you can do to make this podcast get bigger and get out there. Lots of people are actually talking about this podcast and talking about its coverage of the Korean War, especially in light of the fact that the Winter Olympics are going on in South Korea, which, believe it or not, was just a happy coincidence. Anyway, enough of this. So, the song of the week this week is Goodnight Angeline by the Four Harmony Kings. It was released in 1921, and it's a quite... Uh, it's one of those songs that you listen to it and you'd be like, yep, yeah, this, this is definitely up Zach Street kind of thing. Anyway, enjoy, and we'll be back, guys, with episode 10 of The Korean War. The detonation of the Soviet atomic bomb hit the Truman administration, for lack of a better term, like a bomb. There had been little indication up to that point that the Soviet Union was working on its own nuclear device, and while it was anticipated that in the future Moscow would possess its own nuclear capabilities, the timing of the successful test could not have been worse. It came almost exactly at the same time as the communist Chinese definitively eliminated the last vestiges of any realistic Chinese Republican slash nationalist opposition. Although Chiang Kai-shek's forces wouldn't retreat to Taiwan until the 10th of December, by early September in 1949 that is, there was no chance that the Republic of China would be able to claw back its old strength. That regime had been dealt a series of killer blows, and thus the question of whether or not to recognise the communist regime, which was obviously in the ascendant, became a still more sensitive question. As one member of the US State Department's planning staff put it, the fact that they, that is the loss of China and the loss of the nuclear monopoly, had occurred almost simultaneously suggested that we were on the verge of a fundamental change in the balance of power. 
The real question, of course, was how Washington would respond to this communist one-two punch. The answer was, in many ways, quite surprising. Rather than sending US foreign policy into a retreat and delaying the American recognition of the communist regime, Acheson now more than ever wanted to push forward and normalise relations with Mao as quickly as possible. Now that the Soviets had eliminated the nuclear wild card, Mao would have even less reasons to tie his horse to the American cart, so it was vital that Acheson provide another incentive, if driving a wedge between the two communist powers was to be successful. What Acheson envisioned was to ape the British suggestion made in the past. Ernest Bevan, the British Foreign Secretary, a rabid anti-communist in his own right, had envisioned a plan whereby Britain, America and a host of other Western states banded together and formed a block of pressure upon Mao's regime. Rather than independently recognise Mao's regime, the combined strength of the bloc would force Mao to properly consider his next move and to regard establishment of ties with these Western powers with a greater sense of urgency. In short, this idea from London was the latest ploy to combine the strength of Western powers against those of the Soviet Union. In Bevan's mind, the Western bloc didn't have to be irresistible to Mao, it just had to be stronger and more attractive as a trading and treaty partner than the Soviets. The best way to achieve such a goal was to group together and to group as many resources as possible. Only this way could Mao be expected to turn away from Stalin and from what seemed to be on the surface at least, an ideological ally. Of course, if you remember the full extent of Ernest Bevan's Chinese strategy from the last episode, you'll know that this block was only one aspect of it. The first was to move forward with de facto recognition of Mao's regime, and thus to begin talks with Mao's party. While this was going on, London would still recognise the Republicans as the de jure government of China, and would not abandon this policy, perhaps until some incentive by Mao was given. Acheson, though, was uncomfortable with the de facto recognition approach, because he knew it would irk the powerful Republican Chinese lobby in Congress, which at any stage had about 100 senators in its orbit. If Acheson wanted to formulate a US foreign policy that was united, he would thus have to be aware about how far he could extend recognition. At the same time, though, we have seen before that Acheson was something of a realist, and he wanted to normalise relations with the communists, as soon as would be possible. Our man on the inside, Richard C. Thornton, underlined the fact that what Acheson seemed to want above all was to delay recognition of the communist regime for as long as possible until the Republican lobby lost some of its bite. For this to happen, Chiang Kai-shek's regime would have to essentially fade from importance in the Chinese sphere, or at least fade from the political and public American concern. In public, Acheson would claim that the West had much to offer Mao Zedong, but that by weaning Mao off Soviet aid and by offering the less conditional Western friendship instead, Mao would realise where his true friends actually resided, and hint hint, they did not reside in Moscow. Through such a policy, China would be pushed into a middle-of-the-road position in the Cold War, where, if not exactly Titoist, she would certainly not be tied securely to Moscow. An assumption central to this plan was the idea that Mao needed Western aid to rebuild his country, and that only with the friendship of America, or the West, would this be achieved. Mao, it was assumed, would not turn his back on the West, especially since Stalin asked such a high price for friendship. Of course, it could be said that Stalin had the benefit of geographical proximity to Mao's regime, and he also had the carrot of the 1945 treaties, 
which could be held up, as well as the additional, perhaps far more valuable carrot, of Soviet military aid to crush the Republican regime. These three factors were not properly understood or appreciated by Washington, and a sense of arrogance, while not overbearing, did, it has to be said, hang over the proceedings. The idea that Mao needed the West more than the West needed Mao was strong, and of course it was appealing because it inferred that Washington held all the cards. Essentially, the carrot that Acheson could offer Mao was one of friendship and an alternative to dependence on Moscow. Acheson was at least right in believing that Mao didn't want to toe Stalin's line, or to remain dependent upon the Soviet Union, but the Secretary of State didn't seem to grasp that such principles of independence on Mao's part could be sacrificed or at least compromised upon if the price was right. While it is easy to criticise Acheson for his perspective, the man by no means remained consistently certain of the strength of Washington's position. If in May 1949 he had insisted that there would be no change in America's policy towards communist China, by August of the same year he seemed to think that a Western bloc was a good idea, and by mid-September he was putting forward his views on why America should recognise Mao's regime and just be done with it. In each of these changes in policy, a background cause was to blame. If the storming of the embassy in May 1949 had hardened attitudes, the anticipated announcement of the People's Republic of China on the 1st of October compelled Acheson to request that, again, the old strategy be abandoned. Since Mao was evidently forging ahead either way, it no longer seemed to make sense to stand back as had been done in the past. Speaking in the midst of a heated congressional debate on China on the 19th of September 1949, Acheson explained why he now firmly believed that relations should be officially extended to Beijing. In a speech which echoed his argument against wishful thinking in the previous months, Acheson argued here that the establishment of relations was simply the way in which states did business with one another. He said, We maintain diplomatic relations with other countries primarily because we are all on the same planet and must do business with one another. We do not establish an embassy or legation in a foreign country to show approval of its government. We do so to have a channel through which we conduct essential government relations and to protect legitimate United States interests. If Atchison was attempting to appeal to the inner realists in his colleagues, then his speech only seemed to have a limited effect. It was the actual establishment of the People's Republic of China on the 1st of October, though, that truly provided Atchison with a lifeline, because during the course of its establishment, the Chinese foreign minister, Chao Enlai, also called Zhou Enlai, so I'm going to actually change his name from Chao to Zhou because I have been told that Zhou Enlai is more reliable, but I don't know for sure, so if I am wrong in this, tell me and I'll just switch it back. As you know, Chinese pronunciation is not my strong suit, but I have been told that Joe is correct, so we'll see. Let's go cautiously for Joe and Lai for the moment anyway. So to recap, Chow and Lai is now Joe and Lai. That's great. Let's continue. So we've met Joe and Lai in previous episodes. And in this case, he put out a memo to the world, just as the People's Republic of China was being established, and he said that This government is willing to establish diplomatic relations with any and all governments of foreign countries which wish to observe principles of equality, mutual benefit and mutual respect for territorial integrity. 
This message from Zhou Enlai to any and all governments across the world gave Acheson a sense of hope that his strategy for keeping China and the Soviets apart still stood some chance of success. The US State Department determined to respond to Enlai's memo by addressing a somewhat uncomfortable issue. Among the criticisms of the communists, which the pro-Republican lobby often leveled at Mao, was his regime's treatment of American diplomatic personnel. We have already seen the furor caused by the storming of Leighton Stewart's embassy in late April 1949, but even before this date, the US embassy in Manchuria was also stormed, and in November 1948, its ambassador, a Mr. Angus Ward, had been held hostage. Interestingly, on Stalin's advice, Ward had been held prisoner, likely because of the sensitivity of the Manchurian region to both Moscow and to Mao. Trumped-up charges of espionage were levelled at Angus Ward, which Washington had always denied, and now Acheson attempted to prove to his rivals in Congress that the Communists could be relied upon to act rationally. Taking Zhou Enlai's speech as his cue, Acheson attempted to reason with the Communists that if they truly wished to treat equally with all nations, then they should practice what they preach and just release Ward back home. The US State Department was of the view that the Communist reaction to this request would provide a good example of its genuine intentions to adhere to the principle of normal international behaviour. Consider it a kind of litmus test, if you like. Furthermore, with the Angus Ward issue in play, this could be used by Acheson to keep diplomatic channels with the Chinese communists open. Perhaps, under the auspices of trying to bring one of their boys home, Acheson could score some diplomatic points when negotiating with the communists and impress upon Mao in the process that America had Mao's best interests at heart. Furthering this idea, between the 6th and 8th of October 1949, a roundtable conference took place in Washington on the subject of China, and it contained several people which Acheson could see eye to eye with on the question of recognition. In a sense, the conference confirmed what Acheson already suspected, that the majority of free thinkers in America would approve of a realpolitik approach to the communist regime, and that the Chinese Republican lobby was the major stumbling block to the normalization of relations. A significant issue which did the rounds at the conference was the question of the People's Republic of China honouring old treaty obligations such as Yalta and the 1945 treaty agreements. Such requests and the insistence that the People's Republic maintain a standard of respect for human rights and certain freedoms didn't exactly gel with the original stance of Atchison, i.e. that of establishing relations with the People's Republic of China at nearly any cost before the Soviets could get there first. Yet, such were the contradictions inherent in Acheson's character that not only could he repeatedly change his perspective thanks to the developing situation, he could also bring his own viewpoint to the table and place his own expectations on Mao's regime at occasionally inopportune times. Mao, of course, wanted nothing less than the destruction of old treaties. He was willing to negotiate with America, but not to preserve any semblance of the old diplomatic order which gave China the short end of the stick. It does appear as though Acheson wasn't quite sensitive enough to this aim of Mao's, and that he didn't realise at the same time that Mao believed that the Soviet Union was better positioned to grant such a concession. Acheson wasn't helping his case, in other words, by listing as a prerequisite the very items which Mao wished to do away with, in other words, the 1945 treaties. Considering this, what happened next was not that surprising. 
In the midst of the rumoured Sino-Soviet cooperation, Acheson was beginning to see the problems with the United Front bloc. Not only did the bloc irritate Mao, it was also proving immensely difficult to hold together. The latest complication in China was found in Hong Kong, and the British uncertainty with respect to where Mao stood on the matter. Thanks to their 99-year lease of the region, purchased in 1900, London could expect to stick around in the region for a long time yet, but there was still no indication as to how Mao actually viewed this agreement. Would the People's Republic simply forcefully expel the British, in line with Mao's nationalist ambition to cancel all unequal agreements? Neither British Prime Minister Clement Attlee nor his Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan could be sure, and so British foreign policy from the 10th of October onwards began to drift away from that of Washington, as the British thought less of the Western interest and more acutely of their own colonial interest in Asia. Acheson would later recall that President Truman thought that the British had not played very squarely with us on this matter. Yet there was nothing Washington could actually do to stop Britain leaving this block of pressuring states against Mao. In the absence of Britain, that united block of pressure threatened to crack, and that was exactly what began to happen, as other states, especially the Commonwealth members like India for the moment and Canada, began to follow London's lead. The picture was not all gloomy though, as the American Chargé d'Affaires in Beijing noted home that anti-American rhetoric still remained low, and that There seems good reason to believe communist leaders truly desire American recognition and regulation of relations for both political and economic reasons. Despite this, though, and despite the possibility that the PRC could be agreeable to American interests, the Chinese Republican lobby remained a consistent problem, and in this atmosphere, the British Act was a severe irritation. In fact, the British decision to strike out on its own here wasn't merely a sign of things to come. It was also a repetition of Anglo-American history. As the historian M.L. Dockrell explains, the tension in Anglo-American diplomacy over Asia and the Far East was an issue based in both countries' recent pasts. Dockrell wrote, During the Second World War, there had been little meeting of the minds between the US and the UK over the Far East. The so-called special relationship hardly seemed to work at all in this vast area, nor did the situation improve much after 1945. Even when, after 1947, Soviet intransigence drove Britain and the United States closer together, they remained far apart in their respective policies towards the Far East, although now London complained about Washington's neglect of the region rather than of interference with Britain's interests. As if responding to this historical legacy, Acheson wearily presented the case to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on the 12th of October 1949, again from a more realist perspective than some members of the committee would originally have allowed. Instead of stressing the communist-republican divide in China, Acheson focused on the threat of Russian imperialism in China and presented the Chinese situation as one of Russian imperialism versus Chinese nationalism, of Moscow's attempt, in other words, to lord its power over the weakened Chinese. This, Acheson hoped, was a presentation of events that his peers would better understand and perhaps buy into. Acheson said, We have regarded foreign domination of China as hostile to the interests of the United States and hostile to the best interests of the Chinese people. We hope to take the public attitude that the question is Russian imperialism against Chinese nationalism, that we are on the side of the Chinese people, and that we are against this foreign power that is trying to take over in that area. 
Somewhat resignedly, though, Acheson also added that if the Chinese, after thinking it over, want to be communist, that is their business. Of course, Mao Zedong couldn't possibly be removed by this point, so it was less a case of thinking it over than that of the Republicans having lost the Civil War. Yet, as Acheson hoped, China would still be the place where America could do business. As he said, If trade can take place at some time, we are not going to put artificial governmental prohibitions in the way. It would be most desirable, Acheson continued, if the United States could keep a united front on this and act as much as possible together with its allies. Adding in a not-so-veiled reference to Britain that no nation ought to consider that it can get any special advantage by jumping in and recognising them ahead of somebody else. Yet the British would certainly have replied that Acheson's strategy simply was not working, and rather than Britain somehow selfishly forging ahead with an independent policy line, she was engaging with the Chinese in a way which made the most sense. The fact that several other states followed the British example after the event further vindicated the idea that it was Acheson, not Ernest Bevan, who was falling behind with the times. This Anglo-American spat was aggravated by the appearance of Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru in Washington. Nehru's similarly realist approach to the People's Republic of China was captured by Acheson, who later explained the Nehru's general attitude seemed to be that since recognition was doubtless inevitable, there was little purpose in postponing it by diplomatic manoeuvres. Following this, Acheson publicly stated his three criteria for a recognition of the PRC the honouring of old treaty arrangements, the Chinese communists' total control of the country, and the Chinese people's acquiescence in its rule. All these three requests were fundamentally flawed, though, not least because neither acquiescence nor control of the country were issues of much importance in the Chinese situation by this stage. Of course, we know that what would really have rankled Mao at this point, before he even read any further, was the request to respect old treaties, and it was this issue that the People's Republic responded to on the 15th of October, 1949, saying that any treaties signed by the Republic of China with the West in the past were now invalid. Furthermore, on that same day, the Communists continued their domination of the mainland by capturing Canton and driving closer to Hong Kong, placing further pressure on London to accede to the recognition of the People's Republic before the Americans did. These successive defeats to American policy were followed by news that the communists were beginning an assault on the Taiwanese outlying islands, which as we know ended in failure but which to Washington must have seemed like the death blows of that republic. In fact, Acheson may well have wished this communist advance to succeed, since only the total elimination of the Chinese Republican position would in turn eliminate the Chinese Republican lobby in Congress and free American policy up to treat with China as Acheson desired. The unexpected communist failure was a severe blow to Mao Zedong's aim to gain leverage before he met Stalin, as we saw, but it was also a blow to Acheson's hope that the Republican lobby would just disappear. Acheson was also informed that the trial of Angus Ward was going ahead, but that he would be charged with assaulting a Chinese citizen, work that one out after the Chinese had stormed his embassy, rather than espionage. This decision to charge Ward anyway was unfortunate, but Acheson took much away from the fact that, contrary to the old Soviet line, Ward was being charged with assault rather than spying. 
The charge enabled Acheson to hope that the People's Republic was changing its tune, and that it may be willing after all to stand up to the Soviet influence. On both counts, Acheson was incorrect, and the situation was about to get much worse. Although a meeting of the Truman administration over the 26th to 27th of October seemed to confirm a determination to begin a more realist approach, it remained in the dark about the realities of Mao's position, and Washington continued to anticipate the eventuality of a Chinese break with Moscow. Such expectations wouldn't have been further from the reality, and Acheson would only learn how wrong he was a few months later. However, what really stunned Washington in early November was the British circular note recommending immediate recognition of the PRC. This call to normalise relations with Beijing once and for all was rightly interpreted by Washington as the result of Chinese pressures on Hong Kong. Yet, whatever Acheson thought of it, it signalled the end to any possibility of maintaining a united front against China. By now, the stated British view was that the disadvantages of non-recognition were so great as to outweigh any possible advantages to be obtained from first securing Chinese communist assurance of respect for international obligations. The time had come, London explained, for the realists to take over and for the old naivety of yore to end. Mao Zedong was evidently forging ahead regardless, and the West would have to get on the train before the People's Republic left the station, or before, gasp, the Soviet Union managed to find a way to drive that train. Over the following weeks, America's State Department tried to pressure its allies into delaying the recognition of the PRC, but most were by now content to follow the British line. In the first two weeks of December 1949, everything changed. By that point, over the space of a fortnight, everything Acheson had built up had also collapsed. Not only did Ernest Bevan announce when he planned to legally recognise the PRC, thus killing the United Front once and for all, but Angus Ward had also been deported back to the United States, which on the surface may have been a good thing, but which was actually also bad because it signalled the end of that channel operating in the background in Sino-American diplomacy. Worse still, the Chinese Republicans had finally abandoned the mainland on the 10th of December, which represented a fatal blow to that regime, and of course, granted the Republican lobby in Congress some major sympathy credits. Yet unquestionably, it was Mao Zedong's sudden appearance in Moscow on the 16th of December 1949, which utterly and completely defeated Acheson's plan. There was no clearer indication than this that the American plan to keep the Russians and Chinese apart had manifestly failed, and now that Mao was in Stalin's house, there was every reason to suspect that he would be there to cement some kind of alliance. Acheson's fears were at least somewhat soothed by the explanation officially given by Mao that he was there to celebrate Stalin's 70th birthday. Yet this explanation, as we have seen before, represented Mao's own attempt to cover any possibility of failure rather than a representation of genuine expression of why Mao had travelled so far. If Acheson naively hoped that Mao would remain aloof from a Soviet alliance, this hope was ultimately shattered when, in an interview on the 2nd of January 1950, Mao was asked why he was meeting with the Soviets in Moscow. Explaining that he was there to solve the problems between the two states, Mao clarified that, Among these problems, the problems of first importance are the existing Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship and Alliance, the Soviet loan to the People's Republic of China, trade and a trade pact. 
Atchison and the entire Truman administration were stunned by these revelations. Although we of course know that Mao's journey to Moscow was far from totally joyful, Washington would never see the real frustrations that Stalin put the Chinese leader through, nor would it see the genuine difficulties that Mao experienced in trying to wrest the concessions from Stalin that he desperately wanted. All Washington saw, or was permitted to see, was the end result, that of a man they had always suspected, being aloof from the overbearing Soviet Union, coming together with that polity to make what seemed to be on the surface a mutually beneficial agreement. It had long been believed that the differences between Moscow and Beijing would have to keep both parties apart, and that the price of dependence that Stalin would demand would just be too high for the nationalist in Mao Zedong to accept, upon which time Washington could swoop in and offer Mao a far better deal. Neither Acheson nor Truman seemed to realise that Mao felt more pressure and hostility from the legacy of his own civil war, from Washington's continued support of Chiang Kai-shek's regime, and from the more recent demands that the People's Republic of China adhere to all treaties. Mao's sensitivity to such facets of American foreign policy meant that unless a serious change occurred in how Acheson presented his country to Mao, a Sino-American deal would never be possible. Having realised their errors too late, Acheson and President Truman were now faced with a truly grave prospect. The balance of power would be utterly set against them with the Chinese and Russians working in tandem. Not only would Asia be under threat of further communist insurgencies, but Stalin would now be free to focus his attentions on Europe now that his Chinese flank was more secure. The impact on Acheson was something to behold. He set about forming a new policy whereby America would present the best possible deal to the People's Republic of China that it could. Not only would the People's Republic be officially recognised, but unlimited, unrestricted trade and diplomacy would be set forth. Having been outmaneuvered totally in this great game, it was now up to Acheson to pick up the pieces and attempt to make lemonade out of the Sino-Soviet lemons. The old criteria was dropped and a policy whereby Washington encouraged the Asian peoples to pursue their own destinies would be launched. As a silver lining, Acheson believed that an eventual falling out between Moscow and Beijing was inevitable, and he presented the current situation to the president as a wave which the current administration would have to ride, rather than the diplomatic disaster that it actually was. Having said that, Acheson was correct in one sense. American policy would come to see the division and cooling of relations between the USSR and the People's Republic of China, but not for a good while yet. Yet, where Acheson believed he had the time to wait for such eventuality as this and to build up a better rapport with Mao until such an event occurred, Stalin was already busy moulding a wrench which would be thrown into the works. Whether or not Acheson had learned his lessons remained to be seen, yet what neither Mao nor Acheson could have known was the extent to which, within six months, the basis upon which the still hopeful Sino-American relations would be further destroyed. Completely oblivious that 1950 was a year that was destined to spark the beginning of a Korean War of all things, Acheson approached January of that year with an optimistic new policy. Rather than possessing interests in China's future, Washington was set forth its total disinterest in interfering not merely in China but in virtually the whole of Asia. This, as a sweating Sing Man Ri lamented in Seoul, also included South Korea. 
Next time, then, we will connect our Sino-Soviet and Sino-American narratives as both Washington and Moscow attempt to formalize their new agreements with Mao Zedong as 1950 dawns. I hope you'll join me for that history, friends and patrons, but until then, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to the Korean War episode 10. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.